heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this privilege and this honor of gathering together as family. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for keeping us healthy enough that we can gather together as family and be encouraged by each other's faith along the way. Thank you also for inspiring and recording the canon of Scripture so that we can be encouraged by individuals that lived 2,000 plus years ago, specifically in our current course of study, of course, the Apostles, while they were wonderful examples of men of faith, we also know that your Son chose them, not because of natural abilities, but because of their humility, that you were able to complete that good work in them. And we're just so very grateful, Father, for being able to learn this way in this forum, on this day, in this beautiful church that you built so that we may be encouraged this way uniquely through the apostles as well as so many others in the Bible. We are most encouraged, of course, by the pristine example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died on that cross 2,000 years ago as the greatest show of love in world history. May we never become familiar with it, but embrace it for what it is. It is our very salvation. So we do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title is a continuation of why are the apostles so encouraging? And this is, we're still in the introductory phase. Looks like Peter's probably going to be the first one, obviously, but uh, we're still plugging along on um, the introduction. I also want to say, nice to see them, the Mellows and Jackie as well. It's good to see you back. Um, yesterday's blog was titled, Being Really Honest with God. Being Really Honest with God. And I wanted to share an email response that I received from it. It says, thanks, Pastor. I had to read three times, and now Jonah again. Another one for the blog of fame. <laughs> archives. Yeah, this guy is funny. Another one for the blog of fame archives. This ministry is the best kept secret, vision-wise, to blind hearts in the New England Bibleless triangle. However, via our modern media reach and advances, I pray these messages reach millions of open ears and hearts. It certainly impacts those of us sheep that can wipe our eyes and dial in. Thanks again for all you do and for being you. Love you, a member of the congregation. Isn't that nice? So... As always, it's an encouraging gift from one of the family here at North Christian Church, and it's always appreciated. Uh, and I like to share those things, not for my benefit, obviously, but for yours, to know that people's lives are being touched. Uh, people's lives are being changed. They have been changed. I think sometimes it's easy to get a little lost, a little wayward in our vision, um, and not realize 
the beautiful things that God is accomplishing. You know, you think of Philippians like 1.6, you know. He promises to complete the good work he started in you. Well, this is what's happening. Yeah, it's been hard. Yes, it's been difficult. Yes, the lessons have been scraping. Uh, but we're in it together. And we're family. And just, you don't have to always encourage me. Encourage each other. Seriously. Reach out to one another. Encourage one another this way. Say, you know, thank you for your diligence in this area of the ministry. Or thank you for always saying hi to me. Because nobody seems to say hi to me. Thank you for, you know, whatever. Uh, be grateful. For this is a rare occurrence in this world. Everybody's at each other's throats now, if you haven't noticed. This is a rare occurrence. Um, and I can only suspect that it's going to increase in rarity as time goes on. So embrace it. Uh, take advantage of it. And that's why when I say it's good to see you all, I really mean it. Like I look out, it's really good to see all of you uh, here this morning. And so uh, for whatever that's worth, uh, be encouraged. This takes us right into our opening thought this morning. <clears throat> Thank God for what you do have. Thank God for what you do have. There's a sister principle right after this from Thursday evening and Tuesday evening's messages. Always remember that this ministry impacts far more lives than just those you see inside of this building. God has given all of you several spiritual gifts. Embrace them, encourage them, delight in them, and share them. Never become familiar with this ministry and the fact that it impacts lies far beyond these four walls. Far beyond. I just was online. Just sometimes I kill time back there before class starts. And um, yeah, we still get three to 4,000 visitors a month to the website. Now, I know it's not all you because I know you. <laughs> These are people that are thirsting for truth. I mean thirsting. And if you were to see them, if their figurative became literal, they would be parched. They would be dehydrated. They would be, in some cases, emaciated. And so they just thirst for what's coming from this pulpit. And I think it's really, really tragic that any one of us becomes familiar. And I would venture to guess, not to put a damper on the encouragement coming from the pulpit right now, but I would venture to guess that every single person listening to my voice right now, some way more than others, is familiar with this church, with this pulpit, and with this vessel. It's on my heart constantly. Uh, you have to look at all three of those things are gifts from God. And if you did read the blog, you know what happened to that plant that came up over Jonah's head? God can take it away tomorrow. Tomorrow. I could drive home out of here, get run over. I'd be like, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> and you guys would be left without me, the gift that's been teaching you for a long time now, most of you. Don't become familiar with that. And it's not about me, you know that. 
don't become familiar with the grace that you get at every turn. So, thank God for what you do have. Always remember that this ministry impacts far more lives than just those you see inside of this building. God has given all of you several spiritual gifts. Embrace them, encourage them, delight in them, and share them. Again, thank God for what you do have. Interestingly enough, the opening theme of our lessons this past week has been this, though. How about thank God for what you don't have? Isn't that give thanks always for what you do, what you don't? It kind of covers both sides, right? Hmm. Sounds like scripture. Thank God for what you don't have. Maybe you don't have something because you wouldn't be able to handle it. For most people, that's usually the opposite sex. Maybe you don't have something because you wouldn't be able to handle it. God won't, quote, bless you with a curse. But Satan will. For example, it's why so many Americans are simultaneously wealthy and antagonistic to Christ. Why? Because God might say, you can't handle that right now, so I won't give it to you. But Satan will go, I will. I'll give it to you right now. Here you go. And it could be a whole host of things, like DJ and I always talk about. Typically, it's the opposite sex. But it can be money. It can be prestige. It could be a new job. It could be anything that's designed to take you away from truth from God's will in your life. Any of it. But yet, it'd be nice to be, not nice, but it'd be kind of fun to be a fly on the wall for even one day. Now you might say, why is that person praying for that? Don't they realize that that's going to hurt them? And God's like, I won't give it to you. But what you have to figure out is the God of this world will every time. Why? because it's no good for you, because he knows it'll take you away from the Word of God. So thank God for what you don't have as well. And you should thank him often for those things. God hates it when we take credit for his good work in and through us. We saw this on Thursday, Psalm 44.3. For by their own sword they did not possess the land, and their own arm did not save them, but your right hand and your arm in the light of your presence, for you favored them. In other words, God may not give you something so that you don't get cocky, so that you don't get puffed up, so that you don't think that you've got the things that you wanted because of your own power. And that's a very important lesson for all of us, to remember that you're never going to get anything good in this world unless God decides to give it to you. Like I said, the God of this world will give you all kinds of counterfeits, all kinds of things that taste just like the real thing, that look just like the real thing, but they're phonies, and they're designed to trip you up. That's right. I don't have eyelashes anymore. You know, I used to have really long eyelashes. They fell out. Anyways, I digress. Obviously. Oh, it's like, come on, let's go. That's me being flirtatious, right? So let's bring this back to our message title, though, before we get too far. 
out of stride. Why are the apostles so encouraging? The baseline perspective we ought to have regarding the apostles is simple. They were regular people. And I don't mean any disservice or any uh, disrespect to the apostles, but they were just regular people. In other words, there is no particular natural reason why we ought to believe that Jesus chose them to spread the gospel. One of the things we learn about the parables, as we're going to get into them, is that the sower is often left nondescript. In other words, a sower went out to sow. Well, what about the sower? We call that nondescript. Jesus didn't spend any time with it because the implication is that it's in check. The sower and the seed are in check. He's trying to make a point. Well, who were the original sowers? The apostles. In other words, it didn't necessarily matter. It's that God bestowed them with grace, with righteousness, with abilities that they didn't have. And that should be very encouraging to all of us because we all show up in different form factors, don't we? And God uses every single one of us if we're humble. So the implication is that the greatest variable in spreading the gospel is not the sower or the seed. For these are held constant in Jesus' parable of the soils. What we're going to continue to see is that once a person is trained to sow the good seed, like the apostles, and now you all. We just spent almost a year and a half on the gospel. You're well trained now. Once a person is trained to sow the good seed, the crop depends upon the soil. The crop depends upon the soil. So among our first orders of encouragement is the simple fact that the apostles weren't much different than you or I in terms of natural abilities up here on the board. Therefore, glory be to God. One of the key lessons in studying out the apostles is not necessarily that God will always use unexceptional men. He can and he has. That's the apostles, at least the first 12. So one of the key lessons in studying the apostles is not necessarily that God will always use unexceptional men, but rather that he can and does use any kind of person regardless of their natural abilities. Any kind of person can be used. Up here in the board, since God owns the balance and scales, as well as the weights that tip them, the only thing that has any positive effect on His scale is His own righteousness. That's it. You were born unrighteous. You're not imputed righteousness until you're saved. You're not imparted righteousness until he sanctifies you and continues to do so. So anything that tips the scales in God's favor that brings glory to God is given to you by God. So he owns everything, which means it doesn't matter how you show up then. This is an important point because fruit bearing must be righteous for it to be good. Go to Romans 3.21 one last time. We've been here a couple of times. Romans 3.21. It's an important point because fruit-bearing must be righteous for it to be good. 
There's going to be a lot of fruit. There's always a lot of fruit that's just going to be wood, hay, and straw. It's going to be burned up. It's no good. I mean, there's people who start bearing fruit, and that gets burned up. Because it never comes to maturity. It's no good. It looks like it for a little while, but it's never the real deal. Romans 3.21, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law in the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For guess what? There is no distinction. In other words, God gives righteousness through faith. And there's no distinction. In other words, the receivers might as well be nondescript, which is what we see in the parable of parables, the parable of the soils. God's not looking for natural abilities. He's looking for availability. For there is no distinction up here on the board. We all fail miserably to live up to God's divine standards, so it doesn't really matter what we, quote, bring to the table in terms of self-righteousness. God's righteousness is independent from man's. Up here on the board. It doesn't matter how a person is deemed righteous, strictly speaking, but rather that God has chosen to give righteousness to them. That's the point. That God chooses to give them righteousness. All right, now it's time to concentrate. Those are, for the most part, points of review from this past week. Let me give you a few things to think about. So just sort of pretend you have a cup right now, and we're going to put a couple of things in it, and then we're going to mix it. Let me give you a few things to think about. And keep them all at the forefront of your mind because we're going to synthesize them. Go to 1 Timothy 2.4. 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2.4. God desires what? You want to know what God's desire is? In, in a way that you, you can actually comprehend? I mean, there are things that he desires that are far beyond our comprehension. But what about things we can comprehend? Well, this is pretty simple. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we look at God and we say Those are the, that's what he wants. He wants everyone to be saved and sanctified. Fair enough? We know from plainly stated scripture what the will of God is. We also have scripture that describes Jesus' will up here on the board. That came up in a principle called following Jesus this past week. So we just saw God's will. Now look at Jesus' will. If Jesus' ministry was defined by to seek and to save, that's Luke 19.10, which it was, then his disciples ought to carry on that mission. It's, the, it's that simple. Simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ 2 Corinthians 11.3, any believer can evangelize someone. Is there a more righteous thing we could ever do? So synthesize now, okay? Take your little mixing bowl. If it's God's will that all are saved, and it's Jesus' will to seek and to save, and the apostles were trained up to bring glory to God, the way Abraham did, through faith. Here's some more scripture for you. Romans 4.20, our third little ingredient. 
Yet with respect to the promise of God, Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. So we know God's will, we know Jesus' will, even in his humanity. And we know that the apostles, or any disciples, trained up to bring glory to God through faith. And it's by faith that we receive what? Righteousness. Okay, so take a moment now to synthesize God's will, Jesus' will, and how God raises his children up in righteousness to bring glory to himself. Mix it all up. God's will, Jesus' will, and how God raises his own children in righteousness to bring glory to himself. What the Spirit wants you to see clearly right now is the big picture. He wants you to realize that imputing and imparting righteousness to human beings is about bringing glory to himself. Who owns the scales? He does. What tips the scales? His righteousness. How in the world are you ever going to put anything on there unless he gave it to you to put on there? To your, or on your behalf. So what the Spirit wants you to realize is that imputing and imparting righteousness to human beings is about bringing glory to himself. Hmm. And just as a side thought, since God sees everything, and we sometimes think about these things and sometimes don't, being egocentric creatures. Remember also there are ancient creatures called angels watching all of this and rejoicing with every soul saved. We haven't gotten to him yet, but Peter had a lot to say about the last few minutes of this morning's lesson. Peter, through many trials and humility, wrote tremendously encouraging things for all of us to read. Peter knew what Jesus' heart was made of. He knew what his purpose was. And he learned how to synthesize the things he saw and heard through experience. We're going to take a moment to read Peter's magnificent words on that or on what the Spirit's trying to convey to you all this morning. And as we do, again, please keep the big picture in mind, particularly that God imputes and imparts righteousness to man for the purpose of bringing glory to himself. That saving you every day glorifies himself. God saves and is glorified. God's righteousness is profoundly and indelibly impressed upon his creatures through salvation. Um, if you're saved, you'll know you're saved, and you will be forever thankful and forever grateful. God's righteousness is profoundly and indelibly impressed upon his creatures through salvation, whether we are being saved, imputed righteousness, and all that means is God imputes. It's a legalistic type term. Jesus Christ's own righteousness to your account. Thank God. Or we are evangelizing others. We might call that imparted righteousness. Just having the ability. Just think about that. Having the ability to go win a soul having the ability to spread the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, and being totally motivated to do so, 
being properly motivated out of love to do so, we might call that imparted righteousness. God is glorified regardless. The power of righteousness is exemplified through salvation. This is why I've been teaching you the way I have been teaching you. If you knew this ministry five years ago, and you took a snapshot of the pulpit five years ago, and then you listened to this morning, you would see a very big difference between even the teaching style. So just realize that I know that. I haven't magically, you know, unbeknownst to me, changed my teaching style. My job is to teach the way in which I'm instructed to teach you to guide you in a way that's best for all of you. That's why we've spent so much time on the gospel. You might say, isn't that kind of basic? No, that's the whole point. That is the whole point. It's not basic. You know how, look, I could live till I was 500 years old and still teach the gospel, and keep on teaching the gospel, and keep on teaching the gospel, and keep, and there would never be a shortage of content. Or, I can make up words for you if that helps. Do you want me to stop making up multisyllabic words so I can confuse the hell out of you? And you can come to church and become more and more confused? What do you want? Do you want to be encouraged by the truth and set free? Do you want to put back in bondage? Because I'm telling you right now, I can teach a lot longer on this one than this one. So realize that this is why I've been teaching the way I've been teaching you. So make no mistake about it. Even when things seem, quote, too simple, they are not. They're not. They're not too simple. They might be simple in one aspect, in a very good aspect. But they're not too simple to stop listening. Profundity. Something profound. Um, I don't know about you, but the more I mature in the gospel, the most profound realities are the simplest ones. It's true. Hey, guess what? You ready? You, God saved you. What is it? That's a miracle. It's, it's a miracle. Simple. But just knowing that miracle exists for you in your life, does that not give you gratitude forever and ever? Can we not examine ourselves day in and day out on that basis alone? So do not confuse simple with, you know, I don't know, simple-mindedness or silliness or, uh, or lack of import. It's literally the exact opposite. So make no mistake about it. Even when things seem too simple, quote-unquote, they are not. The Apostle Paul wrote two verses that encapsulate what just took me, I don't know, 15 minutes to describe. Two verses. 
This is why I love the Word of God. And you can't say, this is probably the, the, I would say, for me and for this congregation, it might be the most read verse, pair of verses ever from this pulpit, certainly in my own life. Some of you already know which ones they are. They're the same ones that blew the socks off of Martin Luther. And you know, every time I come back to them, I'm like, why was such a, I mean, this guy was like a monk, right? Studious as studious could be. But that's not, that's not terribly difficult, is it? Romans 1, 16 and 17 is not a difficult passage. As a matter of fact, it actually simplifies everything. And that's what blows your socks off. Let me read it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. No distinction. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. That's not difficult. It's mind-blowing, though. All right, let's get to Peter now. Go to 1 Peter 1.10. First Peter 1.10. And let's just read. Remember Peter, the sort of preeminent apostle, the, the leader, arguably, of all the apostles, of the original 12, wrote this. And remember, this is with divinely imparted wisdom that he wrote this. 1 Peter 1.10, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Just remember, there's a pretty darn big stage going on here that expands even beyond humanity. Therefore, and this is all about God bringing glory to himself, therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. That's a reference to what we would call imparted righteousness. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile, uh, futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now, as I was preparing this lesson on Saturday morning, I sat there in front of my computer 
speechless. Honestly, I had to sit back. I had to get up and walk around. Why? This often happens when God's grace overwhelms me. Between Romans 1, 16 and 17, it's still on the board, and what we just read in 1 Peter 1, 10 to 19, it's difficult to wrap our arms around it all. It does, it's not complicated, but it's really difficult to wrap your arms around it all. As I've intimated in the past, it happens just about every Christmas and Resurrection Sunday message too, because that same sense of, I don't know, inadequacy? <laughs> how, do I, how do I do this? How do I represent the Lord on these days? This is what I came up with. The magnificent gospel, for something so, quote, simple as the gospel, there's just so much to say. Too much, actually, in a single lifetime. Maybe this is why God has chosen to allow the great theatron called life to drag on as long as it has. Maybe he's got other things he's trying to show the rest of creation. How do you know? But I know that the gospel cannot be contained. You know why? It's the dunamis, the very power of God. That was Romans 1.16. And it's magnificent. It's simple, but it's profound. It's no wonder the Apostle Paul wrote the way he did. He too was simply overwhelmed by the gospel. And I was thinking about that, um, I suppose in some ways, to the degree we aren't overwhelmed by it, to that degree we're arrogant. To the degree we're not overwhelmed by the gospel, to that degree we're arrogant. Go to Romans 11.33. Romans 11.33. There's nothing more magnificent other than maybe, you know, Christ himself, of course, but he is the manifestation, if you would, of the gospel that you'll ever set your heart on than the gospel. It's true. Romans 11.33, oh, this is Paul, oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. That's how I feel. That's how I know most of you feel after reading the likes of Romans 1, 16 and 17 and then 1 Peter the way we did. But here's the thing. Where does that leave us then? Let's get practical. Where does that leave us? Are we to meander around aimlessly, crippled by our sense of being overwhelmed? May it never be. 
Go to Matthew 9.37. Matthew 9.37, may it never be. So there's sort of this dichotomy, if you would, of being overwhelmed, but also being motivated from a, a wellspring that isn't yours. That's the point. I mean, before you were saved, did you really care about saving anybody? No. You were too busy trying to save yourself, to be honest. Maybe you tried to be Superman like I was as a kid, you know, and the world finds that attractive. Let me save you. Right? And then you fail miserably because you really aren't Superman. And then everybody's angry with you because you didn't live up to the expectations. Nobody's done that? Said enough. Matthew 9.37 Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Yeah, that's right. Let's pray for more evangelists. Let's pray that we have the opportunity to evangelize. I pray for all of you. I hope you pray for everybody else in the congregation that if it's not you evangelizing somebody, that it's somebody else in here that's able to take all that we've learned in the last year and a half and take it out to a lost and dying world. Or you can leave the gospel at your seat here and then go become a friend of the world. You can play the dipsukos card, the double-mindedness. Live two lives, split personalities. Jesus trained his first disciples to take their sense of awe and use it to the glory of God, to pray for their fellow evangelists even. As Paul wrote, we may not always understand the full depths of the gospel's work in this world, but we can embrace it through faith and press on as good, diligent sowers of the seed. We talked about that on Thursday. I used an analogy, you know, about a farmer and a farmhand that had no idea how, to, how a tomato grows, but he sure did like the taste of it when it grew. You don't know exactly how God converts one person or the next, what the person's conversion looks like. We know the forensics. We know there's justification by faith. We can talk about those kinds of things, but we don't know exactly how a soil becomes ripe for one person over the other. How do we know? We don't. But that shouldn't dissuade us. The only way we become dissuaded is if we're, if we're upset that there's nothing special about us. But I want to be the best evangelist. Now you sound like one of the foolish apostles there. Which one of us is the greatest? And the Lord will rebuke them. Our job is to press on as diligent sowers of the seed. We don't always know how God converts a person. As we continue to see with the apostles, we are to take the mantle of evangelism and go out just as Jesus instructed us in the Great Commission up here on the board. Sowing seed. A farmer cannot sow any seed that will bear any harvestable fruit unless he sows it in the field where the fertile soil is. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say this, all right, before you even read any further. Okay, if you take the gospel and you sow it off your couch today while you're watching the games, this is going to land up on your carpet. I'm just saying. 
That's the whole point. In other words, you got to get outside. When's the last time you've seen a, a, a successful agricultural company where all the workers stay indoors? Right? You have to actually sow the seed on the good soil. And if it's a new crop, sometimes you don't realize, and if you do any digging on your own, sometimes you don't realize there's, there's, it's thin soil. It looks good on the top, but this, it's rocky. And you sow the soil, and you're like, yay, and it grows too fast and it dies. That means it wasn't real fruit. Or maybe below that, sometimes mixed in there is, is weeds that choke things out. So the seed takes, and then that dies off. And then there's a good soil, you see? You don't know until you do what? Sow the seed. The rest is up to God. Who causes the growth? God causes the growth. So a farmer cannot sow any seed that will bear any harvestable fruit unless he sows it in the field where the fertile soil is. Likewise, as evangelists, we must sow the gospel seed in God's field, in the lives of others. Spiritual nerds talk about sowing seed, but they never actually get their hands dirty. Before anyone becomes lopsided, though, here's a balance statement because of, as a, trust me, after a few years in this business, trust me, people have a tendency to get lopsided. Oh, what are you saying? I shouldn't watch the game? <laughs> no, seriously. I can't get a refund on the Bud Light. <laughs> I'm serious. People are going to be like, oh, what's that guy? Then they take a problem with me, and it's like, whoa. So here's your balance statement. Okay, so settle down, Spike. Sizzle chest. You cannot force true religion. From James 1.27, let's say. So please do not pretend. You can't force it. It's about motivation. It's about heart. God sees the heart, right? So you can't pretend. You can't force it. God doesn't want phonies sowing the seed of love. For the receivers might realize the insincerity and question Christ, Christ, Christianity altogether. Sometimes the very, I mean, I'll leave it at that. Sometimes the very best thing to do is simply live the gospel. Maybe you're not you know, maybe you're not up to it yet. Or maybe you're not motivated properly yet. Well, then just live it. Just live it. I know there are people sitting here right now. I'm not going to look at anybody. I'll look down. There are people sitting here right now listening to my voice. And the only reason they're here is because someone they knew brought them here who was living the gospel. And maybe that same person could not articulate the gospel fully right now. Let's say in a, you know, a, a form factor that made sense that I could put on the website. You know why? Because these people just lived it. A perfect example of this is with the story of the widow's might. Go to Mark 12.41. Mark 12.41. It's funny, I was just thinking about not to embarrass poor Art Morton back there, but Growing up, I, I didn't, we never talked about Scripture. He probably wanted to. <laughs> I was friends with his son. Anyways, we grew up together. But he was a good man. And I knew it. 
and I knew he was a Christian. Mark 12, 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing, uh, excuse me, how the people were putting money into the treasury, and many rich people were putting in large sums. A widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amounted to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Again, the point the Spirit's driving home here is, sometimes the very best thing to do is simply live the gospel. Ask yourselves, what do we know about the widow? What do we know about what she said? Nothing. Nothing. As far as we know, she didn't say a word. She only gave all she owned. This is the point. As Ralph Waldo Emerson would say, your actions speak so loudly I cannot hear what you are saying. I believe J. Vernon McGee popularized the saying as in Christian circles some years later, but Mr. Emerson said it. Your actions speak so loudly I cannot hear what you are saying. I embrace that too. Not because I have some special place in my heart for either person just mentioned. Rather, I have a special place for the heart of my Lord Jesus Christ who lived the gospel, who set the example. Spreading and living the gospel If we're not verbalizing the gospel, then we ought to live it for all to see its fruit. Just live it. And if someone asks, tell them. Tell them about your faith. You're not going to be most likely uh, as fluent or as eloquent, maybe, as some pastors or evangelists. It doesn't matter. Tell them about your faith. Tell them what you believe. I love Jesus. You can hate me for it, but He's my best friend. I'm, I'm in love with him. <laughs> and that's great. Our perfect example of this is Jesus. Since every believer's life is different, every ministry is too. So if you're not verbalizing it, just live it. Jesus didn't always, Jesus wasn't on like, like it was on ice cream trucks, right? With this phonograph thing on top. Jesus says, Jesus says, you know what I'm talking about? Nobody? Am I the only one? They wouldn't even, those didn't even exist back then, just for the record. Jeez. He, but he lived it. If he wasn't speaking it, he lived it. As the Bible says, he had compassion on people. When's the last time someone remarked even to themselves? about your compassion? I don't know. Would, would there be ever a cause for it? Or are you like one of the jackass Christians who are policing the rest of the world, making it their business to point out how other Christians are somehow wrong? That wasn't Jesus. 
Jesus is the one who said, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. It's incredible. A perfect example of this is Jesus. Since every believer's life is different, every ministry is too. Another facet of our balance statement up here on the board, diversity is good. There's only one me, thank God. There's only one Tammy, thank God. There's only one Monica, thank God. There's only one Bill, thank God. Right? Frank's like, what about me? I'm unique. Yes, Frank. <laughs> Diversity's good. Who the, seriously, God loved Frank, but how, do you want, I don't want to see all Franks out here. You, you need to pray about how God wants you to spread the gospel. So I'm never going to tell you how you should go about your business. I will try to encourage you. I will inform you of things that are going on even in the church, things inside the church. I'll say, that's great. It's all for encouragement. But I'm not going to try to tell you that everybody needs to go spread the gospel this way or that way. That would be a massive, massive mistake. And I would get saying, I'd probably come back bruised. He's not going to let that happen for very long because that would be putting you in bondage. And it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Amen? You need to pray about how God wants you to spread the gospel. While you might be encouraged by others fulfilling the plan for their lives, do not fret about being motivated differently. That is the beauty of God creating you. That's right, you. Every one of you. I don't know what your ministry is. I know that we have common end goals, but that's about it. The final aspect of our balance statement is to protect us from our own fleshes. I was reflecting on this. The flesh is absolutely famous for taking snippets of people's lives and making broad sweeping judgments about them. Famous for it. That's, I can't stand when I come across people like that. They, they spend three minutes in a situation, they tell, and they'll spend the next 20 telling you how everybody is made and how they think and how this one's that way and this one's that way, and I know this one and I know You know Jack. You spent three minutes, and you're, so, you're God now? But that's the flesh. The flesh is absolutely famous for taking snippets of people's lives and making broad sweeping judgments about them. And since we're talking already about the fruit of the flesh, the only judgment a person arrives at are ungodly. They're ungodly. For example, we have no idea what the widow who gave the mite actually said, if anything. That's not the point. That wasn't the point. Not at all specifically. But it is the point generally if that makes sense. Let me explain. Jesus wanted his disciples to focus on something specific. The personality of the widow wasn't the point of focus. Her deed was. The same goes with Job's wife, or how about Ananias and Sapphira? Remember them? They dropped dead. We don't know that much about them, except that moment. Or the man who Jesus said to, Get behind me, Satan. Do we know everything about Peter? No. We know what we know. 
But I'm not going to sit here and uh, uh, character assess him. That would be wrong. So the balance statement is that while we go about investigating the lives of the apostles, by the accounts included in Holy Scripture, we need to keep our fleshes at bay at all times. Why? Because the flesh is unholy, and it does unholy things, and it produces ungodly fruit. The human flesh likes to overstep God's boundaries. It likes to draw conclusions that aren't warranted by Holy Scripture. It particularly likes to impress polarity in others, even historical figures in the Bible, to depravity or idolatry. Either they're totally depraved. Job's wife, what a witch. She was totally depraved. Paul said this wonderful thing. Oh my God, he's, like a, he's just the, you know, the saint of all saints. You don't know these people beyond what's revealed in the Scripture. So cut it out. But that's what the human flesh likes to do. Why? Because human flesh, creature credit, they're synonymous, right? Creature credit likes to go, hmm, let's see. Creature credit loves to rank and file people, right? Oh, that's the best. Oh, he is the best pastor ever. Oh, no, no, he's the best. No, he's the best financier ever. Everything. Oh, he's the most handsome. Or she's the be- most beautiful. No, she's the ugliest. Uh, this one's, you know, this. Everything's like, right? That's the flesh. The flesh is all about ranking people. Every chance it gets, it goes, I win. I'm awesome. Right? That's the flesh. It's, it's literally grotesque. Foul. Think of the foulest smell you've ever smelled in your life right now. And don't look at your spouse. That's your flesh. Figuratively speaking, times a bazillion fold. That's a word. It's Greek, you don't know. That's the flesh. It's grotesque. So all it does is try to leverage creature credit. Oh, you're in that poll, you're in that poll, I'm awesome. All on the basis of creature credit. So do not fall into that trap, my friends. We talked about this on Thursday, case studies aren't doctrine. We're going to read a lot of accounts as we dig in further with the apostles. We're going to read a lot of accounts about people. They're going to be more elongated than Job's wife or the widow's mite account. We're going to learn more about the apostle Peter, John, and these guys. We're going to learn more about these guys. But do not make that mistake of saying, because Peter did it this way, it's gospel. Because John did it this way, it's absolute doctrine. While biblical accounts of the apostles' lives are tremendously valuable, we cannot make the mistake of making doctrines out of everything we read about them. Case in point, just because the apostles were uneducated doesn't mean that only uneducated people people will ever excel spiritually. I guarantee you, people believe that. I guarantee that was something that crossed people's minds. Hmm, I wonder if that means that so-and-so is going to be a spiritual giant and I'm not going to be, because I'm obviously smarter than them. (laughs) What's this pastor guy trying to say? I'm not saying anything. I'm saying it doesn't matter is what I've been saying. But see, the flesh is cooking up 
Stolens, right? Cooking up. Case studies on doctrine. The apostles help us with this. It doesn't take long if you're interested, if you're humble. God's sovereign choices. The original 12 prove that God doesn't need intellectuals to spread the gospel. And Paul proves that God can use an intellectual to spread the same gospel. He said, you want to talk about polars? Okay, here's our polars. we got the so-called uneducated. we got the brilliant one. They're both spreading the same gospel. They, they both, both categories hate anything that gets in the way of simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. They hate it. Just like you and I should hate it. Anything that gets in the way, anything that binds up the truth, anything that halts forward progress of the Great Commission should really tick us off. Whether it's another human being or some systemic issue with society or anything that happens to be going on, it doesn't matter. Anything that stops the gospel from going out should make us angry, should make us indignant. That's the common thread we have with the apostles. What the Spirit's refusing to let us lose sight of is the simple fact that recurs in our studies over and over and over again. Context matters. Life has context. The apostles were no different. You are no different. Every believer is called uniquely. The apostles prove this. Just look at the differences between the original 12 and Paul. Life is context. It's that simple. They were no different. You're no different. We're all called uniquely. Embrace it. I love the fact that you're all diverse. I love looking out at your, the sea of faces, and you're all different. You're all different. It's magnificent. The, it's, it's, why is it magnificent? It's because you're all different. Like, for real. There is no way. I, just think about one other way that you might get this group together in a single room for an hour and a half on a Sunday. Seriously. I don't know what else. If I said, oh, Super Bowl party. Some of you are like, I don't watch football. Oh, okay. Uh, what else? I don't know. Hairdressing school. <laughs> some of you are like, yay. I don't know. But the Word of God got us together. And I don't want you to become a bunch of drones. I don't want you to, uh, and I'm speaking for God, I don't want you to be all the same. I like the fact that everybody's different here. I really like it a lot. It's like seeing something in color as opposed to maybe black and white or just one big blob. So here's a good start regarding the ever so critical context we're currently pursuing up here on the board. Called from different places. Jesus called the original 12 apostles the so-called uneducated and they followed him. However, with Paul, the intellect, he had to knock them down. There was, as we're going to see with the 12, there's certain challenges. Maybe the uh, so-called uneducated ones, their flesh was behind the scenes saying, you know you're uneducated, right? Yeah, I know. You know you should be a little insecure, right? I kind of am. I wonder which one of us is the greatest. No, seriously, what percolates up? What would make someone ask that? What would make a person overly concerned with that unless they were already what? Insecure. They actually let somebody else tell them they were uneducated. Convince them maybe they weren't the right pick. You sure you picked the right people? Look at us. Paul, on the other hand, he didn't have that problem. He's like, I'm the man. 
I'm awesome. I'm Pharisee of Pharisees. God went, <laughs> like some of us have to be, right? We show up. I'm like brilliant. I really am. I'm like, bro, I escaped from school. It's like nothing. This is like great. I just be like, who's like, this is like chess for me. <laughs> I just manipulate people. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just so much smarter than people. So this guy goes, Psh. <laughs> right? It doesn't matter. The idea is that we're called from different places to spread the same gospel. And you all wouldn't be together unless we were bound by this one thing. Again, the point I'm trying to make here is don't make doctrine out of something that isn't there. Every personal account recorded in the Bible has context. And as I've said like a broken record, context is key. Context is key. Context is key. So, with what time i got left here, let's briefly consider the Apostle Paul. Even though he's not going to be one of our primary focal points in this study, the Spirit obviously wants to convince you of our previous point. That he can use anyone from any form factor, if you would. Intelligent, uneducated, doesn't matter. Just like every other evangelist that has ever lived, Paul's life had context. What Paul's example gives us is that the saving grace for any intellect, like himself, is humility. Something we noted in Philippians 3, 2-9. The saving grace for any intellect is humility. Humi- intellect and arrogance don't mix very well. That's like starting with a match and pouring gas on it. Intellect and arrogance usually don't mix very well. But what does the world esteem? Intellect and arrogance. Ability, let me generalize it. Any ability and arrogance. You name it. Some of you are going to watch a football game, right? And you're going to see a bunch of idols prancing around. And everybody's going to be like, did you see that catch? It was phenomenal. The guy's my hero. What? What do you mean he's your hero? He's catching a pigskin. I'm serious. What are we doing? What are you idolizing that guy for? I'm not taking away. You want to play a game, have fun, make, whatever, whatever. But what are we doing? He's catching a football. Just put that in perspective. There's some guy trying to cure cancer down the street. And we're idolizing a guy catching a football? Oh, but he's so handsome. Oh, come on. If it's not one thing, it's another, right? And he's rich. He's rich. He's famous. You picked yourself on his arm. That's what the world, the world's like, yeah, that's what that, you want to be that guy, right? You want to be, you know, that person, right? Uh, the only saving grace for any intellect or anybody with ability is humility. The only chance they've got. Paul's a perfect, perfect example. So let's ponder this precious thing, humility, for a bit more, uh, and then I'll close. For even humility is something that we, as we'll learn, learn and grow in. A lot of us start off a little bit humble, and then God really humbles us. I keep, I've taught Joey this, and I teach Sean this. I just said it to him the other day. The more you know, the more you know you don't know. The, more, the longer you live, the more you realize you're just a speck, like Paul said, right? 
You're just a waif in the wind. You're a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. Kind of makes you feel little. That's good. Because you know who's really big? God. You're little, he's huge. You're littler, he's bigger. The more you live, the, the bigger he becomes and the smaller you become. And that's how he teaches you more and more humility. So you have to, humility is even something that we learn and grow in as part of God's sanctification in us. Go to Philippians 3.8. Philippians 3.8. It's funny, I suppose as we look back on our own lives, at some point in our lives, maybe two, three, four, five, ten years ago, maybe we said, maybe we look back and go, I remember when I thought I was really humble. (laughs) And now in retrospect, you're like, I wasn't humble at all. I was actually really arrogant. My claim to humility was actually arrogance because I thought it was something good about me because I was so-called humble. That's called false humility. You were actually arrogant trying to be humble. Get it? Humble person doesn't do that to themselves because that's creature credit. Mm. They don't do that to themselves. Philippians 3.8. More than that, I count all things to be lost. Okay, this is Paul now, the brilliant one. The intellect, the Pharisee of Pharisees, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Don't leave out that word, my Lord, by the way. Jesus is Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, or just, you know, being religious, so to speak, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Up here on the board, righteousness on the basis of faith. The standout exception we have to the rule, if we're to look at the 12 apostles, the standout we have to the rule is Paul. We're talking about apostles. So the standout exception we have to the rule, Paul is most humbly stating that as smart as he is, it means absolutely nothing. The righteousness that all men need is a grace gift and not an intellectual pursuit. It's a grace gift. If God wants you to know something, you'll know it. If he wants you to have his love, he'll give it to you. But if you're arrogant, he's opposed to you. Even after salvation, you want more, you want to enjoy more of the spiritual life, more freedom, you want all these wonderful blessings, then stop choosing for the world. Literally, stop it. Stop choosing for the world. Stop choosing for yourself. For that person ought not to expect anything. That's the double-minded, double-souled, dipsukos person. The righteousness that all men need is a grace gift, not an intellectual pursuit. Just remember that every one of us has been uniquely created and made in such a way that God can and will use us to His glory. Remember how we started. Remember the little mixing bowl. God's will, Jesus' will, all to bring glory to God. Train some up, impute, impart righteousness to them so they can bring glory back to me, says the Lord God. This is what we've been predestined for. Just like the beloved apostles. Go to Ephesians 1.7. Ephesians 1.7, and I'm closing. I'll show you a video. 
Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. That's Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose. That's you. That's you. If you're saved, you've been predestined according to his purpose, and he didn't make a mistake in choosing you. He didn't make a mistake in creating you. He didn't make a mistake in saving you. He knew exactly who you were. Embrace it. Love it. Love the, the, the diversity you see in others, not just in the local assembly, but the brethren, our sisters and brothers in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel that keeps on giving. That's living the gospel. Jesus said, abide in my love. What do you think I just described? You've been predestined according to his purpose. Who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. His glory. Everything you are in Christ Jesus is to His glory. Amen? Let's show the video, guys. Choose me first if I was looking
All right, let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning, for gathering us together as family to break bread, the bread from heaven, the very bread of life. Thank you for giving us the time and the space, and thank you for exercising patience with each one of us as individuals as we go through our own struggles and make our way in this world and realize that you're behind anything righteous or good that we might experience in time. Thank you for revealing to us in Scripture the reality of this through the examples of the apostles, even, and others. Thank you for the Magnificent One's example, our prototype, our perfect prototype, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was love, who walked in love, who prayed in love, who spread the gospel out of love. What an example. May we embrace it, this simplicity and purity of devotion to Him. That's what this is all about, Father, and thank you for reminding us. It took quite a few of us many years, Father, because we are stubborn and our fleshes are strong. Thank you for knocking us down. Thank you for teaching us humility. Thank you for the freedom that results in following Jesus Christ, your Son. We do just ask for perseverance as we take the gospel out to a world that is in desperate need and doesn't even know it. May we cut through all the thick and thin of it be lights, beacons on a hill. May we spread that love. We ask for traveling mercies as we each go forth to do this very thing. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.